This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Welcome to a special ATP Tennis Radio podcast. This week we are in Wimbledon Village ahead of another Wimbledon Championship. And as is now time-honoured tradition, we have hunkered down with Mars McLagan, former player, coach and commentator. We will be joined uh, before long by another former player and commentator, Barry Cowan. Um, we are in the delightful Maison Saint-Cassien at the top of Wimbledon High Street, which is festooned with all kinds of banners and flowers and people busily preparing, milling around and looking forward, of course, to the third Grand Slam of the year. We're going to hear from one of the men Miles coached, Andy Murray, plus uh, some of the other top seeds. But first, Miles, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. And this is becoming a bit of a, a tradition, isn't it? And so if you, if you ever no- owe me any money and you don't pay, I know what, where to cover what time of year. <laughs> there must be lots of tabs running here at Maison Saint-Cas. Yeah, we've had Brad Gilbert come in, Amelie Moresmo, and, and the guys obviously know everyone here. What is it like to live in Wimbledon at this time of year? I love it, but I love it all year round, to be honest. Um, it was a little bit of luck that I bought my place. I didn't really have that in mind. But um, uh, to be honest, it wouldn't, two weeks is great. Uh, you get a real buzz, um, and there's all sorts of offshoots. That, you know, the real, uh, the thrill of coming up here, and just keeping uh, keep the area looking so good, which is which is a nice bonus as well. But it is nice to just you see the build up. Um, although there's people in my block, they didn't like the fact that uh, the, the cranes were there for about four years with the the, the roof on court one. But uh, all in all, the benefits are great. Could you throw a ball into the grounds of Wimbledon from your flat? Not quite. Could maybe hit a golf ball. Okay. And you're a member of the club as well. Um, what is it like as a member? Are there certain places you can't go that you normally can? It must be, uh, you know, different. Well, first of all, it's, it's obviously a massive privilege and it's, it's great to be able to use the club, such an unbelievable place year-round, you know, to play tennis. After all, it is a tennis club. It's a very, we're all very lucky to be members, so we, we can get on the grass after the tournament and um, use the gym. And, but, yeah, during the year, obviously, the players are the tournament's key. But um, yeah, there th- does come with privileges. Yes, we, we, we get tickets. We, we, we get to buy our tickets, which, you know, everyone, some people think they, they're... Um, that we've, we've just got sort of endless books that we can just dip into. But th- that is a huge privilege. There must be a certain amount of the club that changes for the championship. When does the club effectively get handed back to the members and everything sort of business as usual? Uh, pretty soon afterwards, actually. I think within a couple of days, they start to open the courts again. Um, and then maybe within a week, it's, it's, it's up and running. And uh, actually, that, that's afterwards. But before, I have had the privilege of just seeing... I've, I've, I've paid a little more attention this year because I'm trying to do it in my own garden. And just the flowers that they bring in. I mean, about three weeks ago, there was sort of a... You know, in the area the size of a tennis court, just full of these flowers that have since been, you know, planted and uh, they've got the new wall of course the, the, the vertical wall I think they call it um, I bring my little one up sometimes there's a few fountains and streams that she loves she was very concerned when it was turned off a few weeks ago for cleaning but it's back on it's great to see the event building up and then you know turn, it, what I find amazing is the Monday afterwards it's dead 
And you think the drama, the money, the lives, the, the energy that was here yesterday, less than 24 hours ago, and now it's a ghost town. It's, it's an amazing transformation. You mentioned there's a new wall. There's also a new roof. Court number one, big news this year. What do you make of having two now roofed courts? I, I think it's, it's great. I mean, you know, I, I'm quite a traditionalist, but sport, tennis and all sport, we have to move with the times. People want live sport. As much as we admire Borg and McEnroe and Connors, there's a limit to how many of those repeats you can put on during a rain break. Um, and it's a, it's a great... So we can have two courts with live tennis, keep it going all, all the time. You know, people have... Fans pay a lot of money for, for tickets, whatever, for concerts, music, sport, and they're here, and, and to give as many people a good experience that day is, is key, and so I think it's, it's a great development. I have to say, a couple, well, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Halle, and I know you were commentating at Queen's, and the difference when you can just put it, and German engineering as well, they, they flick the switch on the roof, and it's literally over in 40 seconds, that roof at Halle. It's incredible, but of course it means you get uninterrupted tennis guaranteed, which does make such a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, and especially on grass, because a lot of times, I, I always defend our, our weather, because people, whenever it rains around the world, people go, oh, British weather. It's like, well, no, it rains everywhere else. It's just on grass. It only needs a little sprinkle, and it stops because of the nature of the surface. I mean, and the clay, and, you know, they play through. You play through a bit of drizzle, or, uh, you know, maybe on a hard court, you wait a few minutes and, and dry it off. But um, it is, it, it sort of doesn't quite fit some, depends how it's done. I mean, obviously, Wimbledon, the, the, the fundings is quite large. You know, and every, every tournament has a has the ability to, to build a roof. But all in all, it's, it's a great um, addition. And the committee's been busy this year. There's an innovation as well, if, if you call it an innovation. The ISNA ruling, I think we'll call it. What is it? 12 all in the final set. We'll go to a tie break. It could have been done so many different ways. What, what do you make of the way they finally settled on? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I, um, I mean, the first question was, was it necessary? I mean, I know last year, you know, the semi-final... Um, it ran over uh, it did go on for a long time so I, th I think it probably was necessary I mean my, my opinion I would have just gone with a six all tie break I mean it's it's long enough you know you've, you've, you've got to you've got five sets you know you, you've gone to six all in the fifth it's a pretty tight match anyway, it's a, somewhat of a shootout um, I would agree the Anderson is the match which has finally brought it on you know the better player did win the stronger, you know, Anderson was looking stronger at the end. Um, but again, as I said earlier, you know, we've got to be mindful that people, gone are the days when people sit for five and six hours. You know, there's a lot of entertainment that we're competing with. So you need to have that mix of traditionalism, um, but also innovation that keeps people's attention. And the roof and, and the tie break at 12 on final set are two big news stories. Another one, arguably even bigger for the championship, I'd say, is that Andy Murray is back. Uh, he's not in the singles draw, but he has been back out playing doubles, which is where he's going to be with Pierre Gerber. He's won at Queen's with Feliciano Lopez. Paul King spoke with him after that, and it's fair to say he was pretty happy with life. I didn't know if I was going to be back competing at this level again a few months ago, so it means more than almost some of the, the, the singles tournaments that I won. And um, for Feli, I mean, just a, a brilliant, brilliant week. What have you learned then about what your body's capable of in this sort of short time? I guess a little bit more. Do you know now more about what your, your schedule and your, your targets might be going on from Eastbourne and Wimbledon yet? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of have a, like, a bit of a decision to make. I either sort of set a goal of maybe trying to play singles like post US Open and then I would maybe do a few weeks training, like two, two weeks training after Wimbledon and then maybe keep going with some doubles through the, the US Open swing or take a little bit more time to, to train and maybe give myself three or four weeks, like another month of, of building up and playing some singles. Um, and then I could potentially try j just just before then, maybe at some of the, the tournaments like, you know, Cincinnati or uh, I don't know, New Haven was maybe the week before the, the US Open, Winston-Salem. Winston so I, I, I could do something like that, but I need to see my team. I'm just really happy that my, my body's fine. I'm feeling good and I'm, I'm healthy and, you know, I'm, I'm going to take my time. I'm not going to rush this because I don't want to and, and I, don't, I don't need to. So um, if it means not playing singles until a bit later, fine. I'm just happy happy to be back on the court and no no pain in my hip. Well, Miles McLaggen, as a former coach of Andy Murray, it must be great just seeing him back out there. I mean, he's, he's wonderful for the game. It is, and it created a, a lot of interest. Um, and, I, and I had a smile on my face as just watching him you know, get stuck into competing. And I think um, you know, it's a story that, that anybody can relate to. He was in pain, just, you know, as he said, walking his dogs, lifting his kids up. And it's no fun being in pain all the time. We've had short periods of it, fortunately. But you know, that, so that's the first step. So I think it's just enjoying life, not having to think about every move he makes, never mind being out on tennis court and playing some well, pretty decent tennis. He said there that winning the doubles at Queen's almost meant as much to him as some of his singles titles. Does that surprise you, or is, is, does that just show how just happy he is and overwhelmed he is in a way to just be back? I, I think that's it. Uh, you know, as I said a moment ago, there's no fun spending your life sort of in, in pain. And so to, to have that almost a, a, a new lease where you can go out and compete, be on the court, uh, in a, admittedly somewhat, it's competitive, but a little more relaxed than the, the strain of, of singles, perhaps. And to be, be alongside, I mean, he's enjoyed doubles. I, I was, uh, you know, when I saw it, I was thought back to the time with um, some of those Davis Cup matches with, with Jamie and you get to share that that moment with somebody out on the court which is not something you always get in tennis the doubles players of course do but and, and the singles players you share it with your team but to have somebody that you went through it together I think is is special and um, I think just confirmation for him that his body's going in the right direction I mean he was in a pretty tough place and let's not forget I, I think it's an interesting it'd be interested to see across other sports I mean someone we were talking about him dominating tennis for a couple of years when he was, you know, at the end of 2016, I think it was. You know, he played through another six months and, and has had this injury. So he was never really able to, to capitalize on that sort of momentum that, that he rode. And I'm sure that's in the back of his mind um, coming back. But just to get out on the court, play tennis, have a, you know, a, a real purpose. I know he's been working hard, you know, like really dedicated to six seven hours a day of rehab getting on top of um, on top of the issue and giving himself the best chance I was happy too for Stephen Farrow the tournament director at Queen's because he must have been holding his head in his hands for the first two days with the weather but for the week to finish the way it did with Andy Murray you know a five-time singles champion back out there must have been just brilliant for him um, he mentioned maybe playing singles after the US Open put yourself in Jamie Delgado's shoes he's his coach now um, how are you going to structure his return to the singles court? You listen to the doctors and the physios first and foremost. And, and these things are generally about 
building it up slowly. And, you know, again, I'm reminded of talking to Nishikori's coach. You know, you think they thought they were on the edge of a return. He obviously had all the, the wrist injuries. You think you're on the edge. It's like, right, this is good. And then you go a couple steps backwards and you have to build it up again. So that might be the case. This has been a perfect stepping stone, I think, for Andy. It's a little test on the grass because, you know, the movement's not, is a little, um, is not as secure as it is on a hard court or clay. So it's a test for the hip. But, and, you know, you're covering half, half a court and you know give or take um, and you, you're putting yourself under a bit of competitive stress so it's, it is a perfect stepping stone but I think um, I, I think he's talked about also not really having a time scale which I think makes sense just see how the body goes like as he said in the past if he never hits another tennis ball he's had an amazing career of course he'd love to, but I don't think he'd sit down and, you know, five years and say, oh, my life was, you know, was wasted. I didn't get that, you know, if he gets, so if what he does is a bonus. And of course he's, you know, he's a couple of years older now. So perhaps a little different perspective of in terms of, uh, it's not the pressure that, oh, I, I have to do this. He's done what he needed to do. He can come out and see what he can achieve. Just, you know, everything going forward is, is a positive. I used to, when I was started out coaching um, the doubles guys and we said, like, we don't look back. It's just, we, it's like we walk forward with a wheelbarrow and we just lump in points and cash and t- try this just going back see what you can pick up on the way not not looking back about what might have fallen out the wheelbarrow at the back it was interesting hearing him interviewed near the start of queens the doubles draw he was talking about actually what he was having to do physically the more dynamic movements in doubles that he wouldn't necessarily be having to do as much in singles flip it round what isn't he doing just playing doubles that he would be doing playing singles well, it's the length of matches, of course. Um, you know, doubles, you're generally looking at sort of an hour and 15. I think some of those were, were a bit longer, uh, the longer rallies too. So it's a, in, in some ways, the singles, you, you get a more rhythmic movement because it's side to side. Um, you know, that doubles serve and volleying is, that takes a, that's, you know, it's a different move. You can get the stiff back. You've got to get, especially on the grass, and you've got to get down low to the volley. So, again, it's a, it's a great stepping stone, but it's singles, it's the volume. And, the, and I mean, I've always said it's not just the matches, which we've all saw handy in some brutal matches, but it's the, it's the volume of training you need to do to have your fitness at that level where you can compete not just one match, but can compete the next day. And, you know, we saw Queen's guys had to double up, didn't they? Uh, if, well, if you're Lope, Feli Lopez, you had to triple up <laughs> one day. But so, so it's that bouncing back that they, they train for. But it's just a, it'll be a matter of just increasing the load so that you know the body gets more and more used to it but uh, and perhaps the i don't know it'd be fascinating to see if he'd actually maybe travel to the states to play some more doubles there but um i, I would imagine it's a it's a day-by-day process and given what they mean to to the draw and to the tennis public in in britain jamie murray his brother has said that it's his lifelong ambition to win the wimbledon doubles title he's obviously got a new doubles partner now just imagine if they met in the draw in Wimbledon, I mean, where, yeah. where would Judy That'd be go? awkward, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, she'd probably just go, go. She'd come here to St. Gatti and just have a coffee and enjoy it, right? Um, yeah, they, they have played in the past, and I think, um, I think Jamie might have come out on top, but it was, you know, it's a different scenario because Andy's sort of, you know, he had his priority, and Jamie, you know, with the way the draw is, they, they might sign for that. It's a fourth round, so they would have gone quite deep, but. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's something to worry about down the line. The other awkward one is if Pierre Hugo there. I mean, if he eventually ends up playing Mohu, that <laughs> could be a little, uh, little testy. I was actually going to ask you, how competitive do you think Murray and, Ma- and Herbert are? Because, you know, you've got Andy Murray, former world number one, 
Pierre Gerbert, former pretty much doubles world number one or two, wherever him and, and yeah. Mayu ended All up. All four grand slams on his resume. All four grand slams. It's a pretty formidable partnership if they click. Yes, they are, they are contenders, no doubt. Um, again, it's another step for Andy, which, you know, it's a five-set format, but um, he's, he's such a great player. I mean, the returner, can you think about, you know, being break point, you've missed your first serve, and you've got Andy Murray looking to return your serve, and you've got Pierre Hugo Bear, you know, swarming the net which is what has happened at Queens. Plus, you know, he, he's a righty, but the big server. So a tough combination. It would, Andy's competitive, you know, his ability to perform, you know, on the, on the big house down the road. With a, with a, and the crowd would be, I mean, it would be an energized crowd, wouldn't it? Because to see him back in that situation would be, <laughs> would be interesting. Miles, many thanks. I know you are very busy. It's that time of year. You've got other media to do. You're dashing off somewhere else. So thank you very much. Cheers. Your seat is going to be taken by another former British player and commentator, Barry Cowan. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. Barry Cowan, musical chairs in the, in the hot seat. Um, many thanks for, for joining us. You've been involved integrally in the Wimbledon Championships today. You've been doing the draw. First of all, how was that? Well, I think, first of all, am I a better-looking version, aren't I? Because a lot of people say that we look alike, well, you, Miles you, and I. You and Miles, yeah, you do look alike. It's kind of, you know, Tom Cruise and Ryan Reynolds, that sort of thing. You know, it's difficult to tell you apart because you're both so handsome, you know. I think we need to talk about the draw, don't we? We need to get onto the serious <laughs> business. Get onto the draw. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun. I've done it for quite a few years now. And, and you're try, trying to talk over the draw. So you've got a little jingle of the coins as Richard Lewis, the, the chief executive at the All England Club, pulls out the numbers. Because I think it's nice, isn't it? It's typical Wimbledon that they do it the old-fashioned the old way. And, and then when the names come out, you, you maybe add one word or two words because what you don't want is for the listeners for your voice to be over a name and it might it might be that they're looking for their favorite name or or heaven it might actually be the player player might listen to the i doubt it but or maybe the coach or, or the family but yeah i think you you sort of say something that in a very simple way but obviously i had to make a comment as soon as nadal came out in the bottom half and anderson in the top half it's oh you know, Federer is due to play Nadal in the semi-finals if they get there. But yeah, it, it was fun doing, and um, yeah, and then you and then you sort of dissect the draw as we all do, um, and where well, you can find plenty of great stories in that. Well, let's talk main contenders um, because we haven't talked about them yet. Um, the top seeds first, and they've been a talking point this week in themselves. The fact that it's Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal in that order. Um, what do you make of that first? Personally. I don't agree with it. Uh, I understand why they originally had the, the formula for seeding for Wimbledon because back in, the, back in the day, it was very much a case of clay quarters and clay court experts, I don't need to name them, but 15 years ago, historically, they would turn up on Monday morning to play Wimbledon with no practice on grass and with no chance of winning. And I think that's when they decided, hang on, to be fair to everyone, because also what you've got to look at, if you've got two seeded players, let's say, for instance, a, a fourth seed, and then you've got another seed further down, they're due to meet in the third round, 
and they both lose in the first round, that totally opens up the draw. So I think fair for everyone that they bring in the seeding formula, which I must add, it's your ATP points plus 100% of your grass court tournaments from the previous year and 75% of your grass court points from the year before. However, I think the game's moved on since they last since they had the formula. Now you've got the three surfaces, hard, clay and grass, where more or less all the players play the same way. So Nadal's not necessarily changing his style of play from playing the French Open to, to Wimbledon, a little bit more aggressive. And Rafa has proved last year he actually went further than Federer at Wimbledon, made the semi-finals, Federer lost the quarter-finals. So I personally think it's outdated. However, with the whole um, hoo-ha this week, it's ironic, isn't it, that, and probably rightly so, that actually Rafa and Roger have been, been drawn in the same half. I think it would have been tough for both Rafa and Djokovic if they'd been drawn in the same half as they were last year. Yeah, let's talk about Novak Djokovic. He's the top seed. He's the defending champion. He's actually got one of the toughest draws of those top players, Philip Kohlschreiber. Seb, you're a good guy and I like you, but I disagree. Why? I actually think Djokovic, yes, he lost him in Indian Wells. And obviously, when you've lost to someone earlier that year, there'll be a cause for concern. But that was Indian Wells out um, in the desert with the balls flying. Historically, Kohlschreiber likes those conditions. This is the first round of a major. Djokovic hasn't played a lead-up tournament. Maybe a little question mark. But in the past, that's worked well for Djokovic. I mean, last year he played Queens, but all the previous years, Djokovic decided to miss a, a, a lead-up tournament and has been able to hit the ground running. I think that it's, we've moved on a few more years. And Cole Schreiber, I think his best tennis in terms of five sets is behind him. Defending champion, you're opening up the centre court. That's different pressures. So I, I think for Djokovic, I think there were a lot more dangerous floaters out there. And it's interesting, I looked before the draw um, this morning, I was made an asterisk about potential players that you wouldn't want who, who were unseeded and 10 of those Kostraber wasn't one so I think for Djokovic he's in the easier half of the draw and I think he'll be fairly pleased with, with what lies ahead of course some great players but I think overall he'd be happy Okay, and um, what of Federer? He's just won Halle, his 10th Halle title. I was there, you were commentating on it too. Super relaxed. I mean, he just seems so happy with life. He plays Lloyd Harris, this young South African. Um, well, a good Halle usually means a good Wimbledon. Wouldn't we all be super relaxed <laughs> if, if we are Roger Federer and we use class and we're playing as well as, as he's doing? I mean, what, I think a phenomenal year. Actually, for me, one of, the, one of the best beginnings to a season that I can remember in a long time because, and I know people will point to, to, to 2017 and the beginning of 2018 when he won the Australian Open, but he played the clay court season, which for me was always the right decision. He absolutely got one he wanted, didn't he? Those three tournaments, Madrid, Rome, French Open, got miles in his legs, tough matches that he was able to win couple ways save match points obviously the disappointment against team in Madrid when he had match points I think that showed in Halle a couple of weeks ago those tough three setters Bautista Agut and Songa so he came through it and, and I think second half of last year Roger looked I would say half a step slow now straight away people are pointing towards is it his age is it starting to catch up with him but I think what he's shown by his schedule this year was actually he was playing catch up the second half of last year because he was missing that 
that period in the year. Um, but this year's playing as well as he's done for a couple of years. So I, I think he'll be very positive. Last 16 years at Wimbledon, only members of the big four have won the title. Now, Murray's not going to be playing singles. I actually don't see anything different. I think it's going to be, personally for me, it's going to be between, this is no particular order, but it's going to be between Djokovic, Federer and Nadal who's winning the title because I think it's too many question marks about everyone else. You mentioned Nadal. He's got Yuichi Sugita in, in the first round. If he was a little bit peeved before the seedings were made, he might be a little bit more peeved now that he sees that he's got Kyrgios Tsonga, Shapovalov, Basilashvili and Chilich all in his little bracket. It's the group of death, isn't it? There's always, there's always one group in the World Cup football. There's a, the group of death. And that is, that is the little section that is... It's difficult. And... It's interesting how you, school of thought, which, which side you, you sit on the fence. And I've heard people say already, well, you can discount anyone coming through that section because they're going to have too many tough matches. Or you can look at it on the other side. And actually, if you do get through that section, you're hardened. Yeah. I'm more towards the latter. I, I know there are, is a bit of a worry because Nadal hasn't played a grass court tournament. But having watched him practice this morning in very tricky conditions everything was out the center of the racket Rafa looked relaxed and he's got the French Open I, I think that counts for so much and just the way I mean clay court season was amazing wasn't it the way he he gained momentum he admitted Monte Carlo which I, at the time I was very surprised but I don't think anyone could ever question how honest Rafa is but he said when he lost to Fanini that's the worst clay court match for 14 years but every, almost every match after that, he got better and better and better. And to, to, to have title number 12. And also, he was taking a lot of heart from the way he played 12 months ago. I mean, that semi-final, for me, it's still the best quality match I've ever seen against Djokovic over two days. And, and I think he gets through it. I think you'll like playing Kyrgios. I think you'll relish that. I was just about to ask you about that. If they both get through, which we never know in tennis... But if they do play each other in the second round, Kiros was obviously quite vocal about his thoughts about Rafa. But as soon as I saw that draw, there was one memory that comes to mind. Thomas Burdick against Rafael Nadal in Madrid. And when Thomas Burdick beat Nadal, and the crowd weren't particularly happy that he beat him, it was, it was the days when he was indoors in Madrid, and he went to shush the crowd as he went to shake hands. And I think Nadal said something like, very bad. I then think he won, and I'll stand to be correct, I think he might have won the next 16 times that they played each other. So Rafa will be out for revenge. You, you, don't, um, you don't annoy a great champion. And the, but, but we'll love it, won't we? There'll be a bit of spice to that match. And then further down the line, potentially Songa or Tomic or Shapovalov. I was impressed by Songa. I'm sure you were with the way he played in Halle. He looked pretty strong given his injury problems absolutely he, he looked really good I, I'm intrigued to see I, I see him as a, a real sort of outside threat at Wimbledon to go maybe maybe not all, all the way into the, the last four but I think he could do some serious damage who do you see as the genuine contenders if anyone is going to upset the apple cart in the top three that you mention um, Milos Raonic has been hitting with Rafa today how did he look and is he the kind of player that you think could, uh, could go deep Yes, I, I, I always come from the school of thought, certainly on the clay, you've got to show form. Now, there are always exceptions to the rule, but historically, I think you've got to show form. 
maybe not as important on the grass when you you mention Raonic or you or if you bring Isner into that category or if you bring Query into that category or Chilich or you know the big servers because sometimes form is irrelevant when you have such an amazing weapon uh, and Raonic is someone who unfortunately has has, has been hit with injuries in the last couple of years but he does have good history here having reached the final and I would actually put him higher as potentially someone who could go a lot deep into the tournament than the likes of a Dominic team for instance um, I've got a slight worry about City Pass not not in long term he's going to be a future Wimbledon champion in my mind I think he's got star quality but when I break down his game on grass at the moment, for me, he's a lot happier playing on clay or on slower courts. The serve is still a work in progress. His returns, I would put down in the category as okay. Now, if you, in Wimbledon, to win Wimbledon, and I know it's we're not we we don't have the seven volleys that we had, but you're going to face big servers along along the way at some stage to win seven matches. Federer, let's say, if he's playing Federer or he's playing inspired Raonic or he's playing inspired is, and I'm just obviously plucking names, but returns, I think, are still an, an area that his game, he needs to improve. So, and, and I think he admitted, actually, a couple of weeks ago that his grass court, his grass court game at the moment is still very much a work in progress. So I, I would put sort of the big hitters of potentially the players that, you know, further down the line, that if, if everything clicks with them, that they could maybe, if if the likes of a Djokovic or a Nadal or a Ferros lose surprisingly early, the, the draw opens up. Kevin Anderson? Because, again, his seeding has actually shunted a few of them down as well, which, given the kind of tennis he has or hasn't been playing in recent times, do you see him as a danger? Personally, for me, I would always put Kevin Anderson as a player that needs matches. And if Federer didn't play, as he showed when he won the Australian Open, didn't play for six months, played a couple of matches in Hotman Cup... But his talent factor is off the charts. Kevin Anderson is someone who is an incredible work, works incredibly hard, he's incredible competitor, he's got a great serve, but he would need, I think, confidence coming in to a major that's best of five sets. I think you also need matches in terms of building up the, the, the physical reserves. So that would be the reason I would want to stay away from from Kevin Anderson and and I often look at a section of a draw where I don't think one of the top seeds is going to get through and you know straight away you mentioned Kevin that is the section of the draw that I think is so so hard to pick out because you've got the seeds of Anderson, Pella, Vavrinka, Raonic, Hachanov, Bautista Agut, Pear and Zverev. Zverev still doesn't convince me at the moment on grass I thought he played much better at the French, but he got to the last eight on sheer will and his fighting spirit. That doesn't carry alone to be able to go deep at Wimbledon. You've got to be able to, to play aggressively, play up the court, take the ball on. So, you know, straight away, Raonic, Vavrinka, who I th- feel, Seb, that's played a lot better this year than actually his results have shown over the first five or six months. Raonic. And that's why I just can't discount him. Because if he gets through those first couple of match, matches, he will grow in confidence. Another one of the top seeds who's been winning titles this season, um, not just on clay, 
is the number five seed, Dominic Team. He seems to be thriving under a new coach, Nicolas Massou, and we're going to hear from them both now. Now I am in the different corner, but I will try to help Dominic to, to play his best tennis. I'm not running anymore on the court, but I'm in the corner and I, I feel that I play the matches with him. It's very important for me that Dominic feels that there's a person outside who is playing the match with him. If he wins, I'm happy. If he loses, I'm sad. So, I'm all the time trying to, to do my best. I tell you, I think that uh, I have the energy, I have the motivation to, to, to do this. And I hope that uh, I'm healthy for many years to, to live this life because I like it. I feel confident here. I have so many good friends, the best memories, and this is my life. So I will try to, to do my best. Chile's Nicolas Massou will always be remembered for his heroics at the 2004 Olympics when he won gold in the singles and doubles, an unprecedented feat. After a glittering career, Nicholas retired in 2013. So the first two years, I was like a little bit tired of traveling. That's why I stay a little bit more home. But then I start to miss it a lot. After the second year, I start to, to follow the tour, the results. I travel, but like a spectator and help of course a little bit the players but then I start to like it again to travel and now it's my life I think that here is where I feel more confidence here is where I feel more happy a five-time clay court titleist Masu was keen to rediscover life on the ATP tour so when Dominic team came calling the offer was too good to refuse it's so easy to work with him and it's unbelievable how he practice he gives everything like all the time 100% for a coach to work with a guy like Dominic is so easy. If you say something to him, he do it and better and better. He have the talent to do so fast. For example, in Rio, he was not in his best physical moment because he was sick before. It's the biggest win of Laszlo Gere's career, his first top 10 victory. And the top seed team is out. And in two and a half weeks, he started to play unbelievable and then he won Indian Wells. Open men's singles champion, Dominic Team. He has the talent to do that. For example, in the hardcore season, we change small things that make big difference. Thanks to my team, <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, just the uh, third week together and the first Masters 1000 title. Uh, it's unbelievable. Such a, such a good three weeks here. And I just can say a big, big thank you to all of you. Thank you. Worked out very well. And of course, it's, it's an amazing start to the relationship, this, this title in Union Wells, and then the decision for me was easy to, to take him into my team, and I'm sure that he can help me a lot. All the people talk good things about him. He's a gentleman, he's a very nice guy, respectful all the time. He's 25 years old, and I think that he can improve many things. And looking forward for that, I think that he's a, um, a great player, and he can play everywhere. We talk a lot and he's also very emotional during the matches and then another 
big advantage for him is that many players I'm, I'm facing, uh, he, he still played against them like because he only finished I think five years ago so he can tell me a lot about them and so um, I'm always going into the match pretty well prepared. In Indian Wells he played against Karlovic and Federer that I played with them many times. So it's funny because uh, I can say to Dominic, uh, listen, when I used to play, I played with these guys, this one works, this not, so it's funny. Last season, Dominic finished runner-up at Roland Garros and with Massou by his side. The Austrian has just repeated that achievement in Paris this year. Maybe in the last three, four years, he's in the top three in results, in play. So we don't need to change too much. I think it's the third player with more points to defend. But these kind of players, they are used to it. Uh, all the players have the pressure to defend points sometimes, but I think Dominic is prepared for that. But of course, it helps that in the hardcore season in America, he won a Master Series because it's 1,000 points. You arrive to the clay court season like more calm. And I think that he's playing his best tennis now. The informed Dominic team off to the perfect start. Le Massou gets to his feet. Gabriel Clark there for ATP Tour Uncovered. And before we talk about team, Barry, let's also hear from another big challenger you, you spoke about earlier. The number six seed, Sasha Zverev, hasn't won a slam yet, but along with brother Misha, has been dreaming about it for a very long time. Well, I never had posters on my bedroom wall, but, um, you know, I always loved playing. I always enjoyed it, uh, spending time on the court. You know, I always... When we played... Uh, when we played grass court tennis in the backyard with my brother, um, he always had to be Roger, so there was no way for me to be Roger, but I was always someone like Safin or someone like that. So, um, yeah, we, we had a lot of Grand Slam finals in our backyard played. And when you were playing those matches, did you sort of commentate on the matches like kids do? Like, oh, Safin hits the backhand and then Roger returns it. And it was way too serious. We had to, we had to focus way too much. Uh, I never wanted to lose to my brother. My, ne my brother never wanted to lose to me, so it was, it was too serious to give some commentary. But um, you know, there was a lot of Grand Slam finals. The Wimbledon final, we played it about 48 times, so I think my brother won more than me. <laughs> did, you, um, did you ever break any windows or give your mum any trouble? No, but I played against the house walls and then the house started shaking and it was maybe annoying uh, someone in the house. But um, no, I never broke anything really. And just thinking about where you went to train and I'm sure you would have trained a lot with Misha and then also kids in your own group. But are there any little details you can think about from your training routines? Maybe who drove you to the court or what food you always ate after practice or if there was someone at the court who always said hello to you and looked after you? Well, I was playing with my mum. When I was a little kid, I was always playing with my mum. There was um, every single day we used to hit a lot. And, um, you know, her, her main focus was always my back end for some reason. She always said, your forehand will be fine, your forehand will be fine, let's practice your back end. I guess, uh, you know, that's how my back and maybe became one of the best in the world. So, um, you know, thankful to her. And Sasha, now that you've made it as one of the top, top players, what's it like when you walk out on the biggest stages and the crowds screaming your name and, you know, lots of people watching all around the world? Can you put into words what that feels like? Yeah, it gives me goosebumps every single time. I mean, obviously, this is what you dream about. For me, it was always never about the money, never about the fame. I was always playing on those uh, big stadium courts and uh, in front of those people and, uh, you know, against the best players. And uh, now having this as reality is, is a dream come true. Barry, Misha was better at Sasha was always Marat Safin. I guess the big brother always pulls rank. Yeah. Whenever I played against my brother, I was always Macron, he was always Lendl. 
I don't know what I don't know what says that says about my temperament when I was six or seven. You're a lefty as well. I was a lefty, and whenever I hit against the wall, I was always McEnroe as well. So. But you do that as a kid, right? Absolutely. But, but Sasha, Sasha's never lacked in confidence. Always thought in himself. Always believed in himself when he was when he was travelling the tour with his older brother. I think openly he would say, you know, his I'm Sasha, and I'm going to be the world number one. I mean, you've won almost half the battle if you think like that. And he's got Ivan Lendl in his corner, and that is, is yet to work at a Grand Slam, but you kind of sense that it will in the end. He lost to David Goffin in Halle, which was a little bit of a shock for everyone. Goffin went on to, to make the final. Does Zverev have the game for grass for you? He's going to play Yuri Vesely first round. Not at the moment. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a shock there. Vesely, who plays well on the grass in previous years, actually has you know, dropped down the rankings because of a few issues, obviously physically, but it's come through qualifying. Uh, and the reason I, I don't feel that Zverev is ready yet to win Wimbledon, um, which actually at the beginning of the year, I must make a confession, in the time capsule, I had him down to win the US Open. Zverev. <laughs> Can I change that? <laughs> I had him down to win the French. Did you? <laughs> He, I mean, the match you mentioned about Goffin, with Goffin in Halle, he was a break-up in the third. And one of the biggest problems is why he hasn't been able to translate his great three-set performances into five sets is he makes life hard for himself. The likes of Nadal and Djokovic in a Grand Slam, they go up a set, it's, it's done. He goes up a set, there's always a lifeline. And he gave Goffin a lifeline Second serve is a little bit dubious at the moment. He's prone to quite a few double faults when he loses a bit of confidence. I mean, I think we must, must be honest. In, in five-set matches, it personally is why I love five-set matches. I hope they never change it in Grand Slams. It's because matches ebb and flow. You go through good moments. You go through difficult moments. You have to cope with those hitting the wall at times. If you've been three hours or three and a half hours and you're playing in the heat and humidity at the US Open or in Australia, you hit the wall. But then you find a lease of life, a second lease of life. And I think for, for Sasha, he, he goes through these periods where he loses a bit of intensity and a little bit of focus. And then what happens, he reverts back to almost the old Sasha, which is getting back too far back behind the baseline. He can't beat the very best six feet behind the baseline. He has, when he has beaten the likes of Djokovic and Federer at the O2 last year, when he beat Djokovic in Rome, when he won his first Masters, when he beat Fed, I think it was in Canada, uh, a couple of years ago in the final, it's when he plays aggressive. When he takes that forehand on, I mean, the two-handed back, and we know is one of the great shots of the modern game. But, he re- and you, but you can't be passive and win Wimbledon. So until he convinces himself in difficult moments, that's what he has to do. I wouldn't personally have him as someone at the moment that's going to win a Grand Slam, but I, I still believe that at some stage he will. It amazes me he loses focus because having his dad, Anne van Lendl, staring at him from the sideline, I'd just be petrified to lose focus on the court. But anyway, what about Dominic Thiem? Um, it was a shame he had to pull out of Halle because he, was, he and Kane Ishikori both pulled out of Halle for, for different reasons, but for fitness and, uh, and fatigue-related reasons. Um, can Dominic Thiem do on grass what he did earlier in the year at Indian Wells on hard courts? Can, can he... Can he weld his game into a grass court game? I feel eventually yes, but Indian Wells on hard is totally different to playing on hard in Shanghai or on hard in Dubai. 
And you know, those are quick courts. Indian Wells, it's a very, very slow court, but it bounces high. It's tailor-made for dominant team. When he's playing on grass, the ball shoots through. And although he's improved his returns, it's still a weakness. He hasn't played matches leading up to Wimbledon, which I think in the long run was probably the smart decision because the last thing you want to do after a grueling clay court season, I thought what he did at the French was magnificent. He's getting closer and I hope that he wins the French Open at some stage because his talents deserve that. But when you are then drawn against Sam Querrey, who's going well in Eastbourne, and he's serving as well as Sam Querrey can do, I actually think, I actually make Query favourite. And to me, if team wins, that's a surprise. That's almost a shock because Query's the one who's got history here at Wimbledon having made the semi-finals a few years ago. Yeah. So, so what of the other seeds? You've mentioned them all in passing, really. But given that you hosted the draw today, what do you now think of, you know, Tsitsipas, Nishikori, Anderson, Hachinov, Isner, Medvedev? The list goes on. You've got Raonic, you've already mentioned, Stan Borinka, Berrettini, who's only lost one grass court game this season. Um, Auger Aliassime, you know, who do you think can take this and really make a splash? Well, we always have to be impartial, don't we, in our job? But there are certain players that I really like watching and commenting. I like Medvedev. I like his style. I think he's quirky. I like his personality. I love his honesty. I think it's refreshing that someone is honest. And he's got a great game for grass because of the way he plays. He hits the ball flat. He's got a big serve. Oje Aliassim. It's amazing that he's been talked about as someone who could go 18. deep. He's got all the talent in the world, but has never won a Grand Slam main draw match. Now it's going to change. Uh, and I, th I think for the future of the sport, I think if he plays Djokovic and they are scheduled to meet in the last 16, that would just be magnificent. Because the young guys, although they have respect, I think there's less baggage against when they play the very top. Well, they've not been burnt by them. Kyrgios when he played uh, Nadal a few years ago. So that would be a great matchup. And it was nice to see Goffin back to playing I thought he's near his best actually in Haller the way he played I mean on a, on a, maybe on a different day he might have taken that first set against Federer in the final so Goffin I think is someone who that's a tough draw potentially having to play Medvedev in the third round um, because Goffin was sort of one of those outsiders I thought if he had the if he was in the right quarter could potentially get to the last eight or maybe even the semi-final I mean there's a lot of excellent players that if they get a couple of matches under the belt and confidence then they could go deep. And what are the unseeded players? Come on, g give us an unseeded player. And let's face it, you've got three pretty good ones in Kyrgios, Dimitrov and Tsonga. But who, d who do you think could go deep as a non-seed? Query. If he gets through team, the other seeds in his section are Laszlo Gera, who's got no, no grass court pedigree. Gilles Simon. Had a good Queens. Had a good Queens, but... There's no guarantee. Yep. Fabio Fanini. Now, Fabio again, if we, I'm not going to be impartial. Another player I love to watch. But he is Mr. Unpredictable. And, and I'm always surprised. He's kind of gone in his head that he can't play well in grass. I've always thought he could, given his talents. Taking Volleys well. Taking the ball early. And, and I think he's got a deceptively good first serve. So that is in that little section, 
So if Query gets through against Team, there's no reason why um, Query can't get through to um, you know potentially the last 16 or maybe even the quarterfinals with a potential meeting against Nadal. And Matteo Berrettini, who, who I mentioned before, um, I mean, he almost looked unbeatable for a while on grass, and he's come from nowhere, really. One of the great success stories of the last 12 months, I think he's benefited from what Cecchinato did last year on the clay court, in the clay court season, reaching the semifinals of the French Open. Because when it's someone who, you, who kind of is, is one of your peers from your own country, who does well, who you would feel, I'm as good as him, it's almost, well, if he can do it, I can. And Berrettini made a big breakthrough at the end of last year. But I saw him in Sofia, commentated on his match at the beginning of the year, and he beat Hachanov. And straight away, what struck me was the big game he's got, but also the variation, good athlete, maybe you put into it's a big very game. good athlete, but also his composure. You know, I liked his body language, I liked his steel, he's got a lot of fight. And he's growing in confidence. And, and you were in Halle, Seb, and I commentated on his matches. And I thought the way he played, I mean, he lost eventually in the semifinals to Goffin. But it was close to top five tennis. And when you go through um, Stuttgart, not losing your serve. And actually, I saw, I saw the stat on the ATP website. And sometimes you remember the exact number, sometimes you don't. So please correct me if I'm wrong. But it's the second time he's done it. I think it's happened only 20 times or 21 times in the last 20 years that a player has gone through a tournament without losing serve. He's done it twice. You know, he's up there with some of the greats of the last 30-odd years. And so you can't discount him on grass when you've got the serve that he has. I was remembering back as well to the first next-gen finals in Milan in 2017 when he was the great Italian hope. And he was expected to come through as the, from the Italian championship that qualifies a local player. And he was beaten by Quincy, this young unknown. And I just thought, you know, maybe that was in a way a, the kick up the backside he needed as a young player to think, actually, I, I've, got, I've still got quite a lot of work to do. Because as you say, he's worked so hard on his game and he seems to have a great relationship with his coach as well, doesn't he? Umberto Riano, I've known for years. He's got to be the most passionate coach out there. And it's great, isn't it? Because all coaches have got to have, have, got to have they have their own style. So you, we talked about Ivan Lendl earlier. I mean, Ivan just doesn't move, doesn't he? I mean, it's poker face. You would not want to Even play. Even on a practice call. <laughs> Sunglasses on. No, so even, even when Murray wins Wimbledon, he does no reaction. And then you've got Umberto in the corner and he's getting the fist out. But he does it in the right way. It's not OTT. Uh, and the, clearly they've got very good chemistry between the two of them and, and I mean he, he, is, he is a player Berrettini that it's kind of a little unfortunate he's in Federer's little section if, if he was maybe somewhere else because I think you know Federer likes playing those types of players but if Berrettini let's say was playing someone like a Djokovic then I think he could really worry a Djokovic because of his brand of tennis because it, what's nice now it's just, and it's so rare to see a player like that play aggressively, the variation, good volley. he potentially play Federer fourth round. What about the British challenge this year, Barry? Um, the top-ranked men's Brit is Kyle Edmund. He struggled fitness-wise at the French Open, um, but he's, he has gone much better this week in Eastbourne. I recently spoke with his coach, Mark Hilton. Well, yeah, the last 12 months has been um, 
a bit inconsistent with his health really he's had some really good success obviously on the court but he got injured after Australia Open last year in 2018 and then he had some more um, trouble after Wimbledon which um, really put a, a setback into the US swing um, and then he finished the year with again with a, this problem with his knee he also had his tonsils out at the end of the year so it, it was um, it was an inconsistent year with some great success on the court obviously and one of the goals this year was to really get him to a position where he can uh, compete consistently throughout the year. And you've been with him for a while, you, you know him perhaps better than anyone. How do you help him deal with that frustration and just, you know, because it must be frustrating. Well, obviously it's frustrating, it's frustrating for him mostly, it's frustrating for the team around him because we, we know what he's capable of and we know um, what he's like when he is fully fit. Um, so it's been a lot of careful planning, careful scheduling, you know, adding the challenger in before Indian Wells to get some much needed match time um, and it's proven to be a sound decision because he's, he's gathered some momentum and really helped his belief. Because one of the illnesses, of course, came off the back of his long-awaited first tour win in Antwerp, which must have been so frustrating. Well, it was. Um, you know, it was, it's unfortunate it came at the end of the year because I said it compromised pre-season. Ultimately, Australia, um, he wasn't quite ready away he wanted to be, hence why we took the time after Australia. But uh, he finished the year well. You know, he played well in Asia, and then that was a bit of a prelude to what he did in in Antwerp and. Um, it was great for him to finally get that title under his belt and you could see what it meant to him when he won that. And you're now his sole coach. Yeah, you were working with Freddie Rosengren. Um, we spoke with Freddie a couple of times on the radio. He, he's a great character. Um, how did Kyle and yourself also, how did you benefit from working with Freddie? Well, he's had some fantastic experience, you know, many years on the tour um, and such a good character to have around. Uh, so much energy, um, so much passion and um, a real clear picture on what he felt needed to be done to get to the next level for Kyle and it was great to learn from him um, one of the benefits for me as a, um, a younger coach was to spend time with someone who had that much experience so I'll take a lot from what he what he did and I'm sure Kyle will as well you know even not just immediately but further down the line there'll be things that Freddie implemented which he will use for the rest of his career because Kyle's game it was evolving probably anyway but from being just a, a big forehand which I think was everyone's you know stereotype of Kyle um, he, he's he's much more than that and and that's not happened by accident has it no he's made some some really big improvements in his game with his serve and um, his ability to move forwards um, there is there's a number of things he's doing much better now and he's always had huge weapons in with that forehand and it's always going to probably be one of the main reasons why he is um, close to the top of the game um, and we mustn't forget that he does that so well and keep developing that weapon but he's, he has definitely developed other areas of his game which are, are proving to be a real big strength. That work ethic, that's something that comes easy to Kyle? Well no, I mean there's, there's, the years are, it's, it's always a long year so there's ups and downs throughout the year and and that's where scheduling is really important making things making sure things are fresh with him making sure that he's he's energized to play he wants to get out on the court and he's in that position now where he's really um eager to compete you know especially at the time he's had out and it's just a, a continuation that through the year so that as i said he can finish the year strong as well you mentioned before that you set targets for last year and that he, he reached them really in terms of his ranking and, and other things are you, have you done the same for this year 
You know, we talk about things. We talk about what he'd want to achieve throughout the year. Not not necessarily um, massively short term. There's areas in his game where we're looking to improve still, and if he does that, results will come. You know, obviously, he, having reached um, such a high ranking last year, I think his highest ranking was maybe 14. Um, that next step to be in the top 10 and top top five players is for sure a desire for him, um, and also to to perform at these bigger events more often you know whether it's got his first win at 250 so we're obviously looking at 500s master series and then clearly going deep in the slams tough little patch for kyle on clay um that he came through barry plays charma muna first round um what do you make of kyle and where he's at it's been a very difficult period and often they say in 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 our sport it's hard to get there it's even harder to defend your points uh, and I think having made the semi-finals in Australia in the beginning of last year and then sort of had the few issues physically. This time last year had the tonsillitis sets you back. And, and, and again, Kyle is one of those players that needs matches, needs wins to build up that confidence. And then you just get in that, in that slump and it's so hard. And again, it's a great example of how strong the men's game is. You know, and there was a couple of matches on the clay court season where he was in strong positions, winning positions. And he lost from position of strength, and and then you and then you just lose his confidence. Also, the other players in the rest of the draw see you see you as vulnerable. But you just got to keep working hard, keep believing. Good tennis is around the corner. Play better at the French. Had a really good match against Jeremy Shardy, and and it's nice for Kyle that he's been able to get back to to winning ways in Eastbourne. However, if you look at the, the strengths that he has and the weaknesses because every player has weaknesses right even Federer admitted to that in, in Haller Grass is his weakest surface out of the three um, and I, I sort of look at his section in the draw I actually think Jaume Munar potentially could be quite a difficult opponent I think he could become a really good grass court player I think he's going to become a very good player because he's in sort of the classic sort of I would put the David Ferrer mould great work ethic you know at the end of the career you'll be saying he got the very best out of his talents got a big serve and he's got a nice variation to his game so that potentially could be a very difficult match for for Edmund and then if he gets through that potentially Vadasco in round two well we're not going to try and start predict Vadasco good Vadasco Vadasco wins Vadasco on an off day then very beatable what are the other ones? Um, we've got Dan Evans. He's going to play Federico Del Bonis round one. Cameron Norrie plays Dennis Istomin. James Ward, Basil Ashvili, Jay Clark's going to play Noah Rubin. Um, and 19-year-old wildcard, Paul Jubb, is going to play Joao Souza. Good draw for him uh, because, you know, let's face it, Joao is, is more of a clay court player probably than a grass court player. But um, who do you think could kind of go deepest out of the other Brits? Well, Dan Evans has got a great game. I love his brand of tennis, and he, he is a very smart cookie on court. And if you've got, if you've got a weakness, he'll find it because of the, the extra layers he has to his tennis. He uses the slides, comes forward, and, and actually he's got deceptively good first serve on grass. And, and Dan, Dan will relish his chance to have a really good Wimbledon. So in terms of first-round opponents, Del Bonis, good draw. And Basilashvili Ward, I actually think James Ward's got a chance in that match. Basilashvili, not at the level he was last year where he won two, two 500 events. And you would also say Basilash, for Basilashvili, grass is a weaker surface. I think Evans wins first two matches. 
and then Chilich. He's got history against Chilich. He's beaten Chilich before, beat him in Australia. Chilich is not playing as well as he was before when he, when he made the final here at Wimbledon. I must confess, at the beginning of last week, I really saw Dan as a as potential to get through to the second week. And what about Paul Jubb, this young wildcard? Take you back probably to being in his, in his shoes. I mean, what is that like coming into your first Wimbledon main draw as a wildcard? There must be so many different things just swirling around in your head. What is your hope for him, that he just grasps it and manages to deal with the, the occasion? I don't think he necessarily needs to grasp it. I think he just needs to embrace it. And, I mean, it is a wonderful story. And for me, I think a story we should really embrace in, in Britain, that here is, here is a guy who obviously is history, orphaned, was very young, tragic for his parents, wasn't particularly a great junior, went off to America, developed his game. And what that does is you, you develop your game, but also you develop as a person. Because I think one, the one mistake a lot, a lot of very good juniors make is that they, they want instant success in the pro game and it's, not, and it's not there. There are very few that make that transition very, very quickly. I mean, look at Jack Draper. I mean, obviously different situations. Jack, who made the British player, who made the final of the juniors last year, he's had a difficult 12 months. He's grown a lot. He's had illness along the way, few injuries. You're out in the pro game. It does take time. And if you're not ready to make that jump very quickly, it's very easy to then get lost and you get battered a little bit in terms of mentally. So I think go to the American University, or if it doesn't have to be American University, British University, or, or d d just develop your game, develop as a person. And then two or three years later, once you've had that experience and you're a much better tennis player, then go out in the big bad world and hopefully then you can jump the ladder quickly. But he's had a quick rise. NCAA double, NCAA champion um, and been given a wild card in some of the challenges and has performed well. I have no doubt in my mind he is going to play good tennis. That's got a decent draw. Zhao Sosa, but did play actually quite well in Halle. Zhao Sosa, but... What's, what's nice, and we talked about it earlier as, as a British wildcard, is most of the people watching don't actually know who you are. They have no idea. But when they see GBR next to you, they'll just support you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. He's just starting out on his career as a wildcard. Another wildcard, Marcos Bagdatis. Let's be generous to him. He's in the twilight of his career. I think he's, he's saying he's going he's gonna to retire after Wimbledon. Um, he's been great for the game, hasn't he? What, what do you make of, of Marcus? Just, just quickly, I mean, he, what is he, former finalist, semi-finalist? Former semi-finalist of Wimbledon, a former finalist of the Australian Open, and he's such an exciting player, wasn't he? My mind goes back to when he made the final in Melbourne and all the um, Cypriot supporters, I would go wild. It's very much like when... Um, when Sampras and Philippoussis were doing well down in Australia. But, yeah, it's Brandon Tennis. I mean, you can discuss the merits of whether he sh should have got a wild card or shouldn't have got a wild card. Personally, personally for me, I'm in that category. Yes, I think he should have done. Um, I know he's, this is his last tournament, but he's contributed a lot to the sport. And Wimbledon didn't use all the wild cards. So I, I think absolutely right that, that Bagdatis gets it. And, and if, if he wants a wild card and he takes it, then you've got to presume, right, he's fit.
and, and he wants to put in a good performance. And sometimes when it's your last tournament, actually you put in a good performance. And, you know, who knows? He might, he might be able to have a, a good showing. We might see the sort of tennis that we saw earlier on in his career. And this is the ATP podcast, so we focus mainly on men's tennis, but I just have to ask you about one matchup in particular in the women's draw. 15-year-old Corey Goff is going to play Venus Williams, who must, at some stage, have been her idol or one of them. One of the magic things, Seb, about the Grand Slams is what's the juniors in the second week? What is the future going to be like? Are we, uh, is it in safe hands? And Corey Goff won the French Open juniors last year made a point of watching her at Wimbledon and it didn't take a long time to, to say this, this kid is going to be special. I mean, even though she lost in the quarterfinals, you're not always looking for the end result. Same thing when I first saw Shapovalov here at the juniors. Something sticks out and you go, extra class, good composure, big game. It is an amazing story. Got a wild card into qualifying. I think that was a bonus for her and has taken a chance. I think she's going to beat Venus. 24 years difference, that's pressure for Venus. 39 years of age with what Venus has achieved. It would, again, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? 15 years of age as a qualifier, beating one of the legends of the sport. It would be incredible. How old were you when you played your first Wimbledon? What, what do you remember of the day? I, it was 1994, so I was 20 years of age, or, or actually 20 that year. Oh, I was incredibly tight, incredibly nervous. I had to play Sergi Bruguera, who was a French Open champion. And the, the build-up to, to the match was people were telling me, he can't play on grass, he won't want to play on grass, this is a great chance to win. But I was still very young, very inexperienced. I just kind of shot up the rankings the last six or seven months. I, I'd gone from about 900 to, I think I was around 300. But I played on court 13. And, and again, you know, the story I was saying that no one would probably know who Jub was. No one knew who I was. But the fact that I had GBR next to my name. So I walk onto court and I get a great ovation as I walked out on court. And then Bruguera, with his topspin, the first point that we played, he, he hit big topspin forehand to my back and that I totally misjudged because the spin just caught me out. I fresh-aired the backhand. I mean, that's not, that's not a good place to be, is it, when you're making your debut? Probably, I would say, in around about six or seven minutes, I was three love down, <laughs> which, is not, which is not a good position to be in. It was a better position than what Arvin was when he made his debut at Wimbledon against tell Albert us, Costa, who I think was also on the same court, Seb. Arv was six love, three love down against Albert Costa, who might have also won the French Open that year as well. But unfortunately for me, I didn't win the match. I lost in four. Arvin won that match, beat Albert Costa. But it was, a, it was a great moment for me to be able to... Actually, I played well against Bruguera. And that year, Bruguera made the fourth round. That's Arvin Palmer for anyone wondering who, who you're talking about, of course. Um, and where do you stand on this? I asked Miles McLagan this. Um, I can't remember whether it was last year during this podcast or the year before. Do you want an easy first round draw on an outside court or do you want to play the defending champion on centre court and have that big kind of showpiece event? 2001 was, was, the, was the best scenario for me. I had to play Mark Hilton, you interviewed earlier, who, who's, of course, working with, uh, with Kyle. And I played Mark first round to play Sampras. And I think for any player who is lower down the rankings, you want to be able to play the very best players on the biggest stage 
right? Because I mean, the, the, hard, the hardest part about our sport when you're outside the top 100 is going to play a challenger, whether it be in Germany, whether it be in America, whether it be in Britain, or whether it be in Timbuktu. And you can walk out on court and you can have more lines people than people watching. And that's hard, you know, you lose first round, you maybe are only picking up a check of $200, $300. That's hard to keep yourself, I wouldn't say motivated, but you feel like you're on this treadmill or that you're in this tunnel and you just, it's just a never ending. It just, you, don't, you don't see light at the end of the tunnel. So to be able to, to have that chance, to be able to play Hilton and then know that if I won that match, you kind of feel like you half deserved it that you'd be able to play on a big stage. And I think it's just inspiring because then you've got nothing to lose. And the rest is history. We all, we all know what happened against Sampras, but remind us, go on. Yeah, lost in five. And um, it was, what was nice for me was to be able to play my best ever match on the biggest stage against, well, at that time was the greatest grass court player that there's ever been. I mean, I would argue that, you know, the older people might say Bjorn Borg, might say John Macaron, might say Rod Laver. But for me growing up, he played the best grass court tennis I have ever seen. I kind of my wish really would have been seeing Sampras play Federer in a Wimbledon final. I know they played actually that year in 2001 when, when, um, when I played Sampras, Federer beat him a couple of rounds later. But yeah, the serve and volley that he had, I mean, that, that second serve was something else. I mean, it was 110, consistently 115. But my memories of that match was it was a court one. And you go from the locker room, um, which is you know by centre court, down down the stairs, and it's a long tunnel to go to court one, um, to go out to court one, which was quite nerve-wracking. So I was at the front, Sampras at the back, and as you're getting closer with every step to walking out and getting more nervous, more nervous. And as I'm sure as a, we've all had the experience where you just want to turn back, you just go, I don't want to do this. But you can't, can you? Because you look around, there's Pete Sampras behind you. But then once, once I got out on the court, and, and actually the five-minute knock-up helps. And, and that's why I don't want to sound like a hypocrite, because I'd actually get rid of the knock-up. But that actually helped them. because it helps it, the younger players. It, yeah, it does, because you've never experienced it. Um, so the so likes of Federer would love no knock-up, right? Because if you play on centre court, like the um, Lloyd Harris... He's going to play Federer first round. I mean, it's his idol. It's his, probably his dream come true. He's at least got those five minutes just to try and catch his breath. And you're not losing, are you? Yeah. Do you still get butterflies on first Monday? Just thinking back and, and also what you do now. You know, you work in the media. It's going out to a lot of people. Do you, do you, do you get the same kind of bubbling up? Yeah, I think you've always going to have that, haven't you? You've always going to have the, the excitement. Also, you know, we're accountable for what we say. No, no one's going to remember this, are they? In two weeks' time, when people look at oh, Barry Cowan's prediction, got that one wrong, got that one wrong, got that one wrong. No, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think Wimbledon, being British, I'm going to be biased. Is it is the greatest tournament because of what of of how they do it? But the f- all four Grand Slams have definitely upped their level, and they're all competing against each other. Wimbledon, as we mentioned earlier, roof court one. Australia, three courts have got roofs. Chatrier at the, uh, the French Open. I love that stadium. I think they've done a wonderful job. Next year they'll have the roof. Flushy Meadows, they've, they've upped their game. So it's, I think it's great for the sport. So come on, Barry. All we haven't done is 
you give your prediction for who's going to win the Wimbledon title this year. Who's going to be lifting the, the Wimbledon trophy in two weeks' time? I'm a bit of a romantic, so I'm going to start with the doubles. Okay. I'm going to go Herbert Murray. <laughs> okay. And in the singles, it, this is not a decision on today because I, I kind of I start thinking possibilities through the clay court season. At the beginning of the year, in the time capsule, I had Djokovic. Now, I'm a stubborn so-and-so, and I don't often change, which kind of gets me in trouble most times, but I actually am. I'm going to go for Rafa, just because the way he won the French and the way he played last year, I thought, as we talked earlier, I thought it was just that level was incredibly good. I know he's got a tough draw, but I'm not going to change my mind, my opinion, just because he's got a tough draw, because... Great champions come through difficult moments. So Rafa as my favourite, with Djokovic just behind, and then Federer, I don't see anyone else. I see those three are the only three that can contend to win the title. And who is the non-tennis-loving public, i.e. just sports fans, going to know about after Wimbledon that they don't currently know about? We follow the sport all year round. And my wish is that Tsitsipas has a great run because so far the British public, as great as he is, won't really know him. You know, the diehard tennis fans will, you know, that watch the ATP coverage throughout the year, the Masters, the, the, uh, hasn't appeared yet in, in the O2, the ATP finals. That's going to be later on this year. But the spotlight is Wimbledon. So for me, it would be his run. And, and also, I want to see, and you know, the comments that what Boris Becker said a couple of weeks ago, I want to see a couple of the youngsters really step up and make a really big push. Shapovalov, Oje Aliasim, and I think it would be great if Zverev has a good run. But I think more likely, and I think for me, if it's Pass has a good run and the two young Canadians. Get his dive volley going and everyone will fall in love with him all over again, absolutely. And his As looks beyond Borg, right? Of course. I mean, it's, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, he is a throwback, isn't he? As ever, Barry, it has been a huge pleasure talking with you, also with Mars McLagan. Our thanks. I'm Seb Lozier. Join us again next week as Gigi Salmon and guests reflect on the first half of the championships. Will the top seeds still be there? Who will have caused the biggest upset by then? Send us your thoughts on Twitter. That's at ATP Tennis Radio or by email, the good old-fashioned way, studio at atptennisradio.com and we'll read out your thoughts next week. In the meantime, though, enjoy the tennis. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. Review.